dear friends of Jesus Christ, one of the things we say about ourselves here at Victoria Christian Reformed Church is that we are a family. Blessed by heritage and grace, we say, we are a family of inspired believers. Understanding the church as family is a metaphor that runs deep in the scriptures. In fact, in real ways, it's more than just a metaphor. It's describing reality. This starts with God himself. God himself in the scriptures, he reveals himself as Father. And, G- and, and he invites Christ's disciples to uh, refer to him as our Father. And if God invites us to call him our Father, then it makes us his children. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, as Paul describes it in the book of Romans. Given this, it's not all surprising to me that um, the baptismal font and the Lord's Supper table are the uh, figure prominently in our life together. For in baptism, the water breaks on our new birth into God's family. And at the table, we're, we're welcome to eat and drink with our Father in heaven and our new brothers and sisters in Christ. But while understanding the church in familial, familial terms is rich and accurate, sometimes I wonder if here at VCRC we're a, a little selective as to how we apply that to our life together. We tend to highlight, I think, the, the belonging aspect of our identity as a family, which is good. Uh, but what about the becoming aspect? What about the call to grow up to be mature members of God's household and family? That's what I want as a father when I think about my own ministry to my children. I want, to know, I want my children to know that they have a place to belong. I tell them every night before they go to sleep that I'm just so glad to be their dad. And I'm so glad that God has brought them into my family. But belonging isn't my only goal as a father. I also want my children to become mature. I want to teach them how to handle their tongues and bodies in appropriate ways. I want them one day to be able to hold down a job, to to balance a budget, to, to be a good friend and a faithful spouse, perhaps. I can't, of course, force this kind of maturity onto my children, but I can't be passive about it either. I am an active participant in their character formation. And the same is true for God. While nurturing our belonging, while reminding us of his love, care, and commitment to us, God is also actively nurturing our becoming. He is an active participant in our character formation, our maturity in Christ. And what is God's goal for us? Well, he wants us to be perfectly mature, wholehearted in our love for God, wholehearted in our love for neighbor, even when those neighbors happen to be our enemies. Be perfect, Jesus says, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This verse is totally bewildering, I find. I mean, maturity is one thing, but perfection? As perfect as our Father in heaven, 
How can that be? How is that possible? Part of the problem with this phrase is that the word perfect is probably not a perfect translation of the Greek word teleoi or telos. Teleoi means completeness, brought to its end, finished, whole. A few examples might help. A teleoi tomato is red and juicy and ready to be picked. That's a tomato in its completed state. It's reached its end, and it's ready to be put into a salad. Steph Curry is a teleoi basketball player. It's not that he doesn't make any mistakes on the court. He does, occasionally, but it's very rare. And he lifts up the people around him on the court. He makes them better. His shot is near perfect. His defense is exceptional. In the realm of basketball, Curry is perfectly mature. In English, perfection is equated with being faultless or flawless, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about wholeness. He's talking about maturity in Christ, being what we were meant to be as members of God's household and family. Be whole like God is whole. In a way, Jesus has been encouraging us this direction for quite some time now. In fact, for the last seven Sundays at least, he's been showing us what wholeness looks like in the community of faith. Whole is the person who submits himself to the scriptures and lets Jesus be his guide in applying the scriptures. She is weeding out anger from her heart. He is fighting off off lust like death. Whole is the community that protects the marriage relationship and seeks to be as faithful to each other as God is faithful to them. Their speech is simple. They mean what they say and they say what they mean without need for unnecessary oaths. And when someone slaps a mature member of God's family on the cheek, they don't repay evil with evil but they seek to overcome evil with good. And finally, a perfectly mature member of God's family is able to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. Wow. Love your enemies. Love is such a strong word. I can understand Jesus wanting us to respect our enemies, to tolerate them, perhaps, maybe even to be neighborly towards them. But love? Love is active. To love someone is to want and to work for that person's good, for their wholeness, without expecting anything in return. Agape is the Greek word used here, which means that Jesus is talking about steady, loyal sacrificial love. God's love for the world is described using the Greek word agape. For God so agaped the world that he sent his only son. God demonstrated his agape in this, writes Paul, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Agape your enemies, says Jesus. It's one thing to show steady, sacrificial love to your family and friends, although even that can be hard sometimes. 
That's natural. That's easy in a sense. And most of the time, you can count on family and friends to return the favor. The love is reciprocal. Um, and pretty much everyone in the human fam family is, is capable of that kind of love. But it takes a special kind of power and resolve to be able to show love to people who are out to take you down. Enemies. An enemy is not, uh, not simply a random wrongdoer. It's not just the person who cuts you off on the way to the ferry and makes you late or whatever. And that's, that's a one-time event. That person, you don't like them, but they're not really an enemy. Enemies are people that stick around, that dog you day after day after day. It's almost entrenched. They're there, and it's always hard to be in connection with them. Enemies come in all different forms. Some carry rifles, drive tanks, and represent an enemy ideology. Others pose less of a danger to our, our physical well-being, but more of a risk to our emotional or spiritual well-being. Maybe your enemy likes to hang out by your locker at school, and he pesters you day after day after day. Or maybe your enemy is a, a, a toxic boss who, who makes almost every moment of your working life miserable. In Jesus' day, the enemies of Israel were the Romans. They walked all over the promised land like they owned the place. But worse than the Romans were the tax collectors, because the tax collectors were traitors. They were Israelites who sold their soul to work for the Romans. So for those of you who lived through World War II, the tax collectors would be like your neighbors who decided to side with the Germans. How did you feel about those kinds of people? Now imagine living on a shoestring budget with barely enough money to put food on the table. And then one of those tax collectors comes knocking at the door. The Jews of Jesus' day knew that they were supposed to love their neighbors, but their definition of neighbor was other good Jewish people. They couldn't imagine loving their oppressors or traitors. But Jesus tells them otherwise. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Be like your Father in heaven towards them, Jesus says. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's an even-handedness to God's gracious way of dealing with the world. Some refer to this as God's common grace. God causes the evil, farmer, uh, evil farmer's crops to grow just as he causes the Christian farmer's crops to grow he keeps my heart beating, and he keeps my enemy's heart beating. Sometimes we wish that God would just eradicate toxic people who make our lives miserable in this world. And while it's certain that Judgment Day does approach for the tyrants of this world, in the meantime, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. His love is shown through creation, and all people benefit from that. And if you think about it, if our Father in Heaven chooses to supply the wicked with daily bread, shouldn't we, His children, do the same? 
About 10 years ago, a French film came out uh, called Of Gods and Men. If you haven't seen Of Gods and Men, I highly recommend it, although it is painfully slow. So you have to kind of get into the, the slow movement of the film. But it is so good. Of Gods and Men tells the story of eight monks serving a Muslim community in the North African country of Algeria. The Christian monks have a great relationship with their Muslim neighbors. They get invited out to the parties in the town, the birthday parties. They, they have meals together with their Muslim friends. And one of the monks, Father Luke, he's a doctor. And a few days a week, he runs a clinic in town serving the sick and the poor. As the film progresses, we begin to hear rumors that there's a radical Islamic militant group on the move. And most of the film captures the discernment process these monks go through as a community. They're wondering, should we stay? Should we stay at our post and stick with the ministry God has called us to? Or should we flee back to France and uh, seek safety there? One day, they decide to stay, by the way. I should put that in. One day, the Islamic militants arrive at the monastery. One of their own has been shot and is in serious need of medical attention. Father Luke invites them in. He commands them to leave their guns at the door, but he invites them in, and they come. And then he proceeds to care for this wounded man he pulls the, the bullets out of his body and, and dresses his wounds. In a few days, he's feeling better and he's released from their care. And about a month later, those militants return to the monastery. But this time, they haven't come for aid. This time, they've come to arrest the monks and to take them away. And the monks are never seen again. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Sometimes we wonder, is, is, is this the best approach? Is this the only approach available to us in relationship with our enemies? What about justice? What about creating good boundaries and, and respecting those boundaries? Is love for enemy the only mature response for a member of God's household? There's no doubt that there's many complicated scenarios and situations that we could work through this morning to try to flesh this out, to see what it looks like. It's safe to say that Jesus is not inviting us to become doormats. Active love is, is not cowardly in any way. And having good boundaries with enemies is important too, and actually sometimes that can be an act of love towards them. Additionally, seeking justice is not always something that is opposed to love. Sometimes it can be connected to love. And yet it is true that the more one becomes whole in Christ, the more one becomes concerned with agape. And as the Spirit transforms our minds, we begin to see that there is no such thing as mere mortals. Everyone and everything is, is charged with value. And we come to see that Christ 
came to put an end to the cycle, the endless cycle of sin and death and violence. He's come to redeem it all. He died for all people. The mature have a poise about them, a resolve deep down in their bones. It's formed in them by God himself. They remember that they too were once enemies of God. They remember the way that that God showed his agape towards them, how he sent his son. They remember how they too, who are outside of the family, were brought into the family by grace alone. And when you're standing neck deep in grace, it becomes easier to be gracious towards others, even your enemies. Like the gospel itself, this kind of love is a beautiful thing to behold. It is a witness to God's love. On earth, there is no power greater than the display of agape love towards one and one's enemies. Here's another example. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot met in Quito, Ecuador. They were both missionaries there. They married in 1953, and then they were commissioned uh, by their mission agency to go minister among the Huarani tribe not long after. Not long into their mission with that tribe, Jim um, Jim was killed by the people he was trying to connect with. Uh, you might know the movie, the, the End of the Spirit, tells their story. So, imagine you're Elizabeth. Your husband has just been killed by this tribe. She, at this time, had a 10-month-old baby with her. What does she do? Does she flee back, head back to the States and try to make the best of life after this tragedy happened in her family? Does she shake the dust off her feet? No. In obedience to what she felt like God was doing in her life, she stayed put. And she began to befriend some Huarani women. She learned their language, and she spent another five years after that actively discipling discipling people from the tribe that put her husband to death. Many of them came to faith through her witness and her love. So how do we do this? How do we love our enemies like this? I think it's important to know that we can't do it on our own. If your aim is to to love your enemies, you probably will fall flat in trying. But if you make your home in Jesus, as Jesus makes his home in you, Jesus will reform you from the inside out, renovate your heart, And after a while, you'll find yourself being able to keep in step with your Father in heaven. And it's such a liberating place to be, keeping in step with your Father in heaven. It's such an awesome experience to feel love for an enemy for the first time. It's liberating. Now, instead of being consumed with with hatred or anger or, or, or fear, you feel free in a way from them. Corrie Ten Boone talks about this feeling of freedom. There she was after the war, face to face with one of the guards who oppressed her and her sister in a German concentration camp. 
and he was holding out his hand, asking for her forgiveness. She prayed for the power to forgive. And as she reached out her hand, she felt a release. And she also, she said, experienced the love of God flowing through her in a powerful way. In moments like that, where you, where you reach out to make contact, to show love to an enemy, there's, it's more than just a release. You experience something of the pleasure of God. And there's no greater experience for a son or daughter to have than to know that the Father is smiling upon them and is delighted with their work. It's a joyful place to be. So actively living in communion with the triune God is essential. This is where the power comes from. But it also comes from, from prayer, I think, And I think that's why Jesus adds the pray for those who persecute you. And I have to say I'm speaking mostly from personal experience here. And I have found this to be quite simply amazing. If you're having trouble with someone in your life, start praying for them. I literally imagine the person in my mind. And then I start asking God to bless the socks off them. And I pray for the relationships their work, their joy. I pray that they would come to experience the the fullness of life in Christ. And then all of a sudden, it's like freed up a bit. Like, now I'm curious about this person instead of scared of this person. I wonder wonder what's going on in their life. It's, It's just, it's an amazing thing. Prayer can be the gateway towards love of enemy. But it's also a sign, I think, of love, that you actually are living in love because you wouldn't bring them to your Father in heaven in prayer if you didn't love them. Well, love for enemies is important important on the, uh, the interpersonal level. It's also essential on the communal level. Together as the body of Christ, we cannot bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ by fighting holy wars. The church has tried throughout the centuries, but it has been a catastrophic mistake. You cannot win your enemy to the love of God while trying to fight them with the sword. That's not the way of Jesus in the world. The way of Jesus is costly, sacrificial love. He is our guide. He is our master. We follow him. And I pray that we become perfectly mature as individuals and as a body, perfectly mature as members of God's household. Lord, empower us all to love all, even our enemies, as you have first loved us. Amen.